All right, we are up to week 35 on the Ordinance of Covenanting. Uh, we're going to be covering the National Covenant or the National Confession over the course of the next few weeks. <clears throat> so this is National Covenant Part 1. <clears throat> the fourth term of communion, the public social covenanting is an ordinance of God, obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament. The National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person. Um, we're going to be talking about the first portion of the National Covenant, which is the section that is passed down from 1580. Now, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, when we were talking about the practice of the New Testament church. And I pointed out that there was um, there were a series of five uh, particular bands or covenants that were made in Scotland leading up to this national covenant. Uh, so from the beginning, and even prior to... Um, <clears throat> 1560s a year, Scotland officially throws off Romanism and adopts Protestant, uh, the Protestant confession. But even prior to that, leading up to that, um, we had several of these covenants. In fact, there were three of them leading up to that time. And then there's a fourth in, in, in 1560. And, and then there's a fifth in 1562. <clears throat> All five of those are looked at as precursors of the National Covenant. Now, I say that, <clears throat> excuse me, there were um, a number of covenants that were made uh, at this time. The Protestants were, prior to 1560, uh, they were on the defensive, and so in order to effect their defense more effectively, they entered into these bands or covenants, which were leagues of mutual defense. They, they agreed uh, confessionally, and they also were bonding or banding themselves together by covenant uh, for the promotion and defense of the true religion in Scotland. <coughs> With the shift, <coughs> the shift that occurred in 1560, as Scotland becomes more and more receptive to the Protestant religion, these covenanters begin to um, to push from uh, if you if you look in 1560 we have the Scots confession being adopted by the church and we have the first book of discipline which John Knox and and five other Johns was the book of the six Johns but John Knox is the most prominent uh, he is involved with writing this and this is a manual for how to reform the church throughout the nation of Scotland. 
having the, those things in hand, uh, there is then a push to see that this is enacted. Now, in 1560, legally, Protestantism becomes the legal religion of Scotland, and Romanism is canceled out. And, and what I mean by that is this. Throughout the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church had claimed to have political dominion over all the European nations. In fact, over all the world. <clears throat> but over the European nations particularly. And as a result of that, they, they uh, presumed to meddle in not only church affairs, but political affairs in the various nations of Europe. In 1560, the Scottish Parliament says enough of that, and essentially they cancel the jurisdiction of the Pope in Scotland. Say no more to this. We're not going to allow this to happen anymore. So from 1560 to 1580, when the National Covenant we're going to be discussing is first sworn, during that period of time, you have an increasing number of people in Scotland who want to see the implications of the Protestant Reformation carried out everywhere in Scotland. But they want to see everything that's been corrupted by the Roman Church, not only in, in the Church, but in the state, removed. <clears throat> and the National Covenant, uh, as far as the First Reformation goes, the National Covenant represents, in some respect, the high watermark of that covenanting movement of the First Reformation from popery. Right? We're going to, you know, next time we'll be getting into the second portion of the National Covenant, and we're going to see that uh, this becomes the the um, backbone of the move then in Scotland between 1580 and 1638 when these other sections are added, um, it becomes a matter of concern that prelacy, uh, even though we've gotten rid of the Pope now, <clears throat> the Anglican Church in Scotland is a problem. The government of bishops and the interference of bishops in temporal affairs and, um, uh, quite frankly, the interference of the the um, civil magistrate in spiritual affairs is looked upon as as continuing to be problematic. They want to, there to be a cooperation between church and state, but they don't want there to be a confusion of jurisdictions. The, the church has a spiritual jurisdiction. The state has a political jurisdiction over the nation. And while they they want there to be they want there to be a cooperation, they don't want the the state meddling in in the jurisdiction of the church, like telling the church what doctrine to hold, or telling the church who should be disciplined and so on. And conversely, they don't want the the church interfering in matters of state, like the Roman Church was doing for hundreds of years prior to the Reformation. Okay, so um, 
the national covenant is that high watermark in the first reformation in Scotland. And this first portion of the national covenant as sworn in 1638, which is what we're going to cover tonight, this portion, and we're going to go over it a section at a time and discuss some of the things found in each section. This portion was the confession. It was called the negative confession. Right? Remember, they had the, in 1560 the Scots Confession, but this is a casting off uh, in, in a, a covenant context, casting off Romanism by the whole nation now. It's called the King's Confession because the king and everyone in the king's courts uh, subscribed it. <clears throat> it's called the National Confession because it was... Uh, subscribed by all of the uh, various estates in the nation of Scotland at the time. It's called the National Covenant because it's not only a confession, but it is a covenant uh, to resist and and oppose Roman Ro uh, Romanism, Roman Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic uh, doctrine and, and Roman Catholic practice. <clears throat> and so they're interested in getting rid of that. And we'll be looking at, you know, some of the complaints. The National Covenant really sets out a series of, of um, observations on what Romanism has done, what they've taught, and why it needs to be cast off from a Protestant perspective, uh, why we should be opposed to it. Okay, so we're, although we're not going to get into the question of why we say these deeds are of continued obligation on the moral person tonight, we will eventually be talking about that. But what I want you to pay attention to is this. What we're going to examine tonight and over the course of the next couple of weeks show, will show you that what they're covenanting is of abiding moral uh, validity. Right? There's nothing particularly circumstantial as to the matters contained in the National Covenant. There are some circumstantial aspects of that covenant, and while they help us understand it, we're not saying that the circumstances are, <clears throat> um, in the letter of them, binding on the moral person, but we'll talk about that later. But we are saying these big outline uh, issues these are important, and they remain important for the preservation of Protestantism throughout the world. <clears throat> and as descendants of the Church of Scotland, as Presbyterians, uh, these things remain, uh, absolutely remain uh, concerns, or present concerns. If you understand what's going on in the world today, uh, the, the fact is that Romanism still needs to be resisted. So I'm going to begin, and you'll notice in your papers uh, the the words in the little, the smaller print are the National Covenant, and we have the whole of the National Covenant from 1580 uh, is going to be what we're going to be reading through tonight, and then we'll ask questions and and uh, field some answers with respect to some of these things. Some aspects I, I'm going to comment upon uh, beyond the question and answer. Uh, just because I think they're they're interesting, they're important, and 
you should have some sense of why you you shouldn't be a Roman Catholic. <coughs> all right. So we all and every one of us underwritten protest that after long and due examination of our own consciences in matters of true and false religion, we are now thoroughly resolved in the truth by the word and spirit of God. And therefore, we believe with our hearts, confess with our mouths, subscribe with our hands, constantly affirm before God and the whole world that this only is the true Christian faith and religion, pleasing God and bringing salvation to man, which now is, by the mercy of God, revealed to the world by the preaching of the blessed evangel, and is received, believed, and defended by many and sundry notable churches and realms, but chiefly by the Church of Scotland, the King's Majesty, and three estates of this realm, as God's eternal truth and only ground of our salvation, as more particularly is expressed in the confession of our faith, established and publicly confirmed by sundry acts of parliaments, and now of a long time have been openly professed by the King's Majesty and whole body of this realm, both in Burg and land. So, <clears throat> um, we're, before I get into the question, let me just go over what they're saying. Uh, they're, they're noting that Protestantism is not something which has only arisen in Scotland. Right? This is part of, they, they understand it's part of a broader uh, effort on the part of the church to be reformed. When they talk about, uh, particularly expressed in the confession of our faith, they're talking about the confession, the uh, Scots Confession of 1560, uh, which, as we'll see next time, particularly <coughs> when we go through some of it, um, it was professed openly by the King's Majesty. And in fact, there are a whole series of laws that are passed in Scotland between 1560 and 1638. And we'll see a lot of those, uh, Lord willing, next time. We'll look at some, at least some of them, uh, and see that they were <clears throat> very active. <clears throat> they were active politically, civilly, to see that all of these things that the Roman Church had tried to impose on the Scottish society were being undone. They wanted to see them undone, and it's also notable that what we find in the Scots Confession of 1560, which is a Reformed faith, they're saying this is the only true Christian faith and religion. Okay, so uh, we're not going to get into a whole question of authoritative toleration uh, tonight, but we'll, we'll touch on it. And that's, I think, <clears throat> understanding why in Scotland there is uh, concern uh, not to to allow all these divergent views that are coming up. They understand that Protestant, Reformed Protestantism is the true Christian faith, and that's what they, as the Church of Scotland and as the, the magistrates of the nation of Scotland, want to see promulgated. So they're not into <clears throat> the whole... Um, freedom of religion in the sense that, you know, you can believe anything you want to believe, and that's okay. 
All right, so question one, is it important for the covenanter to be thoroughly resolved in the truth by the word and the spirit of God that we might believe the true religion and reject the false? And the answer is yes. The short answer is yes. We'll begin looking at Romans 14.5. The Bible tells us that we're to be fully persuaded of what we believe. And, and that's, uh, full persuasion is the result of the twofold agency of the Word of God and the Spirit of God working in a people. That's why they're, they're so concerned from the very beginning here that the, the Word of God and the Spirit of God are <clears throat> at work. And, and they talk about they resolved in the truth by the Word and the Spirit of God. Right. The Word of God being the sword of the Spirit. Look at Ephesians 6, 17. And given by the inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. And that, that word of God is that by which the believer then might know and discern what is really the good from the evil. All right, so, uh, we're, and we're not just talking about morally. There's a sense in which everybody knows morally <clears throat> that there is such a thing as good and evil, and they have broad outlines of, of what that entails. But it's through the Word of God that we have a very clear dividing line between what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. So we'll look at Hebrews 5, 13, and 14. Right, so the the point of this, and, and the author of Hebrews is talking about, um, he's talking about really what happens through catechizing, uh, and catechizing presumes certain things, right? It presumes that there is an objective truth. It presumes that the truth is knowable. It presumes that you are capable of knowing that truth. <clears throat> those are all important. And those are all things nowadays that are actually contested. But the people who are swearing the National Covenant, they're not conflicted like post-Christian modernism. If they believe there is something which is the truth, objective to you or me, uh, that that truth is noble and that you can, in fact, come to know it. And that's important if you're going to have certainty, if you're going to have assurance, and if you're actually going to uh, believe in something enough, like the Protestants, that you're willing to die for it, that you believe in something enough that you're willing to forego uh, the immediate pleasures in this life um, in in hopes of attaining that and so on. 
right, it's the Spirit's ministry of illumination then, which transforms the mind of the believer into a ready receptacle for the truth of the Word of God. I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. Right. So Paul Paul is saying, look, we have the mind of Christ. How? Uh, by the Spirit of Christ. It's by the working of the Spirit. And you've, you've heard me say this on other occasions, uh, and this is something years ago, uh, Ernie Riesinger, who's a matter of truth trustee, said to me, um, he said, if you have the word without the spirit, uh, you dry up. If you have the spirit without the word, you blow up. If you have the word and the spirit, you grow up. And, and so there's a necessity that you have both the spirit and the word working together. Right, so the word, <clears throat> in order to be received by you, there needs to be a working of the Spirit of God in you. And thus the same Spirit enables the elect of God then to discern that divine truth. Look at Psalm 119.18. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Open now mine eyes. Why? In order that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Right? We need to have the Spirit of God open our eyes so that we can see it. However, we need to have the Spirit of God working in us so that we can understand it. Right? And, and the Spirit of God is working in and through that Word. The same Spirit who, who inspired the Word is working in those who are believers. And it's the duty, then, of the Christian to embrace that which is good and eschew that which is evil. Look at Romans 12, 9. Romans 12, 9. But love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. <coughs> abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Right? And that's, how do you do that? That is actually uh, the Spirit of God working in you and through you. Right? There's no way you, uh, of yourself, of your fallen nature, that you're going to do such things, right? Because uh, that which you would, you do not, and that which you would not, you do. But by the Spirit of God, you are enabled to abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. Uh, and remember, that word cleave, when he says cleave to that which is good, that's one of those words that connotes covenanting. Right, so how do you, uh, what what should be your approach to God, to, to what is good? You're to covenant unto it. Right? You're to pledge yourself, body and soul, unto that obedience of the faith. <clears throat> All is to be accomplished then that the believer grows in assurance of heart and faith toward God. 1 John 3, 19-21. 1 John 3, 19-21. Yeah, so again, we're by believing and by obedience, 
the believer actually grows in assurance of heart and faith toward God. So when the Spirit of God is working in you, and the Spirit of God is working through the Word toward you, there's a convergence, and when you're in that obedience, then you you are actually able to have uh, assurance, right? You can you can be sure that you what what you know is true. You can be sure that what you believe is is in fact the Word of God. Uh, that what you're doing is the right thing, and so on. <clears throat> so this is why they're talking about word and spirit. <clears throat> and we see, uh, we see here that they're uh, they're in, interested in this to such a degree that they say they believe with their hearts, they confess with their mouths, subscribe with their hands, and constantly affirm. They understand that uh, belief is not something that is only, say, uh, an inward disposition, but it's going to manifest itself, and it's going to manifest itself uh, particularly in a way of covenanting, that they're going to take hold of God. They're going to take hold of God through this covenant of grace, and they're going to take hold of one another in the bond uh, of the church. And they're even saying more than this here. They're saying we're going to do this as a nation, not just as a church, but as a nation of people, the Scots people. <clears throat> All right. So let's continue with the National Covenant, to the which confession and form of religion we willingly agree in our conscience in all points as unto God's undoubted truth and verity grounded only upon his written word. Now, uh, I want to talk about this before we get into uh, the question here, but this is important because you can what you can see right away is this. Scots understand that they're going to subscribe not just the Bible, but they're subscribing the Bible as interpreted in a particular fashion. Right? They understand that the Bible as interpreted in the confession and form of religion, that confession of 1560, and um, you know the, the implications of which really are, are actually found here in this national uh, confession or negative confession of casting off, <clears throat> they're saying that they believe that that is the undoubted truth and verity grounded upon the written word of God. And and here's, this is the important point. They're saying we willingly agree in our conscience in all points. In other words, they're not only saying that we are um, going along to get along, that, we, that we're willing to conform outwardly for the sake of peace, but they're pledging themselves to be heart covenanters, not just lip covenanters. And the only way they could do that is if they really did believe it was the Word of God, because only the Word of God can bind your conscience. And so they're saying we really and truly believe that this Protestant confession is, in fact, the true 
meaning of the word of God. Right? This is it. Uh, and we're not just paying lip service. Right? We are saying we agree in our consciences. That is, as before God. We agree in all points. Right? So these churches today, which uh, have off in their office bearers, right? they, they have what they call system subscription. If they're, if they're supposedly creedal churches, and they say they want you to subscribe to the system of doctrine, but you don't have to agree in all points. The Scots, as not only as a church, but as a nation, they repudiate that idea. You know, the, the technical term is, uh, do, we, do we believe quia or quatenis? Right? Do we believe that something in the confession, uh, we, we believe it only so far as it agrees with the word of God, Quatennis, or do we believe quia? That is, we believe that it actually expresses a true teaching of the Word of God, and that's what they're saying. They believe it expresses what is actually taught in the Word of God, and therefore they're bound to it as much as to the Word of God, because it's a true teaching of the Word of God. As Samuel Rutherford says in one of his books, uh, the Word of God wrongly interpreted is not the Word of God. Right, so. If we, if we divorce the letter from the Spirit, that we don't really have the Word of God. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what the scribes are doing. Jesus is continually chiding them for that. <clears throat> we have to have the Word and the Spirit. And that's what a good confession of faith actually binds together. Right? The, the true teaching of the Spirit of God found in the Word. So, question two. Ought the conscience of the covenanter uh, to agree in all points to the confession and form of religion of the church as unto God's undoubted truth and verity grounded upon his written word? The answer is yes. Look at Nehemiah 9.38. Yeah. So in Nehemiah, what are they doing? <coughs> they are... They write out a covenant. Now, that covenant, um, to the extent that we have a record of it, is, of course, the inspired word of God. But that's not the point. As they're writing it, all right, what they're writing is the true interpretation and application of the word of God for their situation. And they seal to it. That is... They set their, their consciences to attest that that is the truth. They're not waiting for some other explanation. Uh, they're not in a state of continual flux and doubt. Right? The purpose of a, a creed, the purpose of a confession is to remove doubt, to move you beyond that, to confirm you in the faith. See that in Acts 15, and actually Acts 16, uh, where we're told the churches that received the, the decrees from Jerusalem, the dogma, as the Greek says, uh, that they were confirmed and established in the faith. So receiving a confession uh, that is, in fact, uh, accurately showing forth the teaching of the Word of God 
has the effect of confirming and establishing someone. And that's why this is an important point. These people want to be confirmed and established in the truth. They don't want to be wavering. And they want to halt between two opinions. Believers are commanded to hold for, fast the form of sound words. It's 2 Timothy 1.13. Yeah, so when Paul is saying that to Timothy, and, and we'll see some other verses here, but Paul is indicating that the sound words actually have a form where there's a pattern in them. A pattern in sound words. That's what a confession or a creed really is. It's showing you the pattern so that when you read the Bible, you can recognize, because someone's already pointed out to you certain patterns in the Word of God, you can recognize that's what's being taught. The adoption of such a confession or form by the church implies that it is received as the teaching of Scripture. 1 Timothy 3 15 and 1 Timothy So Paul, when he's talking to Timothy, he says a couple of things, right? He says, uh, he tells him that the church is a pillar and ground of the truth. Um, and and um, uh, that, that tells us it's the duty of the church to hold forth the truth to the rest of the world around it. Uh, Paul talks about the trust. Uh, the, he's talking about the, the teaching that's been committed to him. He calls it a trust. And that's really what a confession or a form of sound words is in the church. It's a trust. So there's a trust uh, that is to be adopted in the church whereby you can discern what is true and what is not true. Now, let me just say, um, this is important uh, precisely because we don't and can't read others' hearts. But when we extract, extract and objectify that truth in a confession or creed, I can ask you very clearly, do you believe this or not? And you can answer very clearly, I do or I don't, right? Um, if you if you are lying to me, there's nothing I can really do about that. But um, the presumption is that you will tell the truth when you're confronted in that way. So uh, that the confession has a way of objectifying what it is we ought to believe and securing that belief in the hearts of all those who are communicant members in the body. Uh, and that that goes double for those who are uh, who are assigned to be the elders and teachers in the church. 
So this, to, to receive this uh, authoritative teaching as such is to receive it as even as we would receive faithful preaching as the word of God. And this is important. Your first Tim, uh, excuse me, first Thessalonians 2, 13. Yeah, so the the result of <clears throat> the hyper-individualism that arose because of the Radical Reformation, uh, outside of the Lutheran and Reformed churches, <clears throat> the, um, the Baptistic churches, and so on, they have so individualized the faith, it's impossible for anyone to obey this command, to receive the preaching of the Word of God, as it is, in fact, and indeed, the, the word of God? Well, no, they, um, they confuse private judgment and private interpretation, right? Uh, the fact is, the scriptures do not admit of private interpretation. You are to add your private judgment, which is why you need to study the Bible. You need to be able to say when you hear it, yes, that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, but the, the creeds and confessions of the church are there to help you so that when you hear those things being declared, you can say amen. You can set your seal, that's the truth of God. You can receive it like the Thessalonians did as the word of God. You're not sitting there trying to figure out whether or not you agree with this confessional point or that creedal uh, statement. That's, that's not for you to decide uh, because those matters of the faith are not matters of private interpretation. Right? They're, the fact is that you have an obligation to the great beliefs. Now, I'm not talking about... Um, I'm not talking about... Uh, particular applications or particular interpretations of this or that text. But when we talk about the creeds and confessions of the church, we're talking about what the early church would call the rule of faith, or Paul calls the analogy of faith, whereby we look at this passage or that passage, and we understand all of the Bible to be teaching certain overarching truths. And those are what we find in our creeds and confessions. Right? Members of the church are commanded to walk by the same rule of attainments. Philippians 3.16. Philippians 3.16. Nevertheless, where to already attained, let us walk by the same rule, because mine the same thing. So when the church has uh, attained to something doctrinally or practically, particularly when we see people... Um, and I don't want to get into all of this right now, but when we see people dying for the truth, we see people being called to be martyrs on behalf of this or that particular truth, uh, we're commanded to abide by that. We don't have a right to decline from that. There's no right to backslide. There's no right to apostasy. There's no right to heresy. You don't have a right in the church to that. Um, in fact, you're supposed to maintain or hold fast 
these attainments even in the face of a declining church. So look at Revelation 3.3, 3, for example. So you are commanded to hold fast. Right? All the church around you can be departing, declining, whatever. You have an obligation. Every believer has an obligation to hold fast. And this all goes to our point here in the in the uh, National Covenant. You know, why are they saying this? Why are they talking the way they're talking? They recognize this obligation that lies upon each one of them. Right? So corporately as a church, a national church, uh, corporately as a nation, the, the nation of Scotland, and individually as members, <clears throat> these are obligations which fall to them in all of these uh, different relations. So the only way you can achieve this is when there's a conscientious agreement that such confessions and forms are grounded upon Scripture. Look at Romans 10.17, Romans 14.23, Isaiah 8.20, and Hosea 5.11. Romans 10, 17, Romans 14, verse 23, God is damned if he eat because he's not a faith, but whatsoever is not a faith is to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Okay, so what, when we when we look at these verses and we think about uh, this idea that we need to have a conscientious agreement, and the only way we can do this is if we if we understand these things are founded and grounded upon the scriptures. Uh, understand this: faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Like Paul says uh, that faith is engendered in a person through the hearing of preaching. But if that preaching is not the word of God, then it can't engender faith. Right? So the, the difference between the, the faithful preaching of the word of God, where what is being declared is the truth of the word of God, and the word of God itself is nil. And that's what we're saying about confessions which are accurately uh, declaring. The, the reason why confessions are subordinate standards <clears throat> is that confessions are not, they can be inerrant, but they can't be infallible. They ought to be inerrant, but they can't be infallible. There's nothing in them that would preclude them from falling into error when churches make confessions. Only the Word of God has that characteristic. Only the Word of God is infallible. And that's why the Word of God is our supreme standard. And all of our standards have to be judged by that. Nonetheless, that said, um, when the uh, when the Arminians came to, to uh, Bogerman, who was the moderator at the Synod of Dort, and they said, we want the liberty to interpret the confession. They were talking about the Belgic confession at the time, a reformed confession. We would like the liberty 
to uh, interpret that according to the Bible. And Bogerman said, that is heresy. We interpret the Bible by our confession, not our confession by the Bible. The reason is, there's no end to controversy if you confuse your confession with the Bible. Right? The reason for confessions is to put an end to the controversy over what this or that passage means. We have confessions because we're dealing with people, and they're still around, who deny that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, or believe that he's just a, a super creature. They deny the Trinity. Right? They, they deny the doctrine of election. Uh, they deny uh, you know, the, that the law of God is binding on all men. We've got all kinds of errors and heresies out there. <clears throat> Our confession is telling us what is true and false interpretation. So it is, it, it's part of a hermeneutical circle. All right, but we need to understand we don't have a right to private interpretation. Our right to private judgment is, in fact, to apprehend but through prayer and study what the Bible's teaching and to give our assent to what the church is teaching so long as it's true. <clears throat> right, question, well, let me read the next little section of the, the um, uh, National Covenant here. Therefore we abhor and detest all contrary religion and doctrine, but chiefly all kinds of papistry in general and particular heads, even as they are now damned and confuted by the Word of God and Church of Scotland. So, question three, should the Covenanter abhor and detest all contrary religion and doctrine, especially papistry and its general and particular heads, as they are now damned and confuted by the Word of God and the Church? And the answer is yes. Get Psalm 97, verse 10. <coughs> Yeah, so those that fear God are enjoined to practice righteousness and to test that which is evil. 2 Timothy 2.19. Right, so God calls his people not only to embrace the truth, and this is where a lot of people today, modernity uh, has a real hard time with this, but we're not only to embrace the truth, we are to reject what is not true. Right? And we're to reject it in such a fashion that we make clear we detest it, we hate it. Right. The call of the Christian is not one of indifference to the differing opinions of religion and doctrine, but to join to the love of true God a hatred for all that is contrary. Again, Psalm 97 yeah, 10. So you that love the Lord hate evil. You can't remain morally indifferent and profess to be a believer, right? You you can't uh, take the position that um, I, that doesn't affect me. I don't really care about that. 
it is an expression of love to God that you hate evil. So it's not only, uh, you, you can't say on the one hand, I love God, and on the other hand, say, I don't really have an opinion on things which are wrong, right? Uh, whether they're doctrinally wrong or morally wrong. They're evil. They're wrong. And if the Bible says that they're wrong, God says, I hate that. I don't like that. I don't want men doing that. I don't want men believing that. Then we should follow that. We shouldn't um, get into this mindset that it doesn't really affect me and therefore, uh, you know, I don't really care what other people do. When we do, we get into that whole question. Remember, that's Cain's question, isn't it? After he killed Abel, God says, you know, where is thy brother? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Well, you know, the whole Bible actually answers that yes. Right? You, yes, you are your brother's keeper. And, and so if you love your brother, and you're not to suffer evil upon him, but you're to rebuke him. You're to love your neighbors yourself. Uh, that's, that's the point. Jesus quotes that from Leviticus 19.27. <clears throat> anyway, true love to God will show itself in a real hatred of all sin as that abominable thing which he hates. Amos 5.15. And love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. So the, the command there is what? It's to hate the evil. Right? In, in this, this command is a command, uh, and, and as so many of the things we're going to be talking about, uh, it's a command that comes to you in. Uh, or with respect to your place and station in life. You know, so this becomes an issue when we're talking about the magistrate, right? Um, there may be things that I hate, but there's not a whole lot I can do about them. But there are some things I can do if I'm a parent and I hate what's going on. Uh, there are more things I can do if I'm an elder in the church with respect to other people in the church. Uh, there are things that can be done to people in society if I'm a magistrate. And the, the you know, the higher up I am in that, the more uh, very often that can be done to affect that. <clears throat> so it is in this holy intolerance that genuine spiritual instruction or understanding is demonstrated. Look at Psalm 119.104. Yeah, think about what the psalmist is saying. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Right? How do we know that you got understanding? I hate every false way. You know, in, in other words, if you don't understand what's wrong so that you can reject it, you don't really have understanding. This is a problem. Uh, I, I see this with a lot of American Christianity and how you know you have a bunch of people who are teaching in seminaries and churches and so on. They have no understanding whatsoever. How do I know? 
because they don't hate every false precept. They don't have understanding. They can protest all they want that they get this or they get that. They don't have understanding. And understanding, we've talked about this in other contexts, but understanding literally means to stand under something so as to support. There's no support for your religion. Right? There's no support for your love of God. Your love of the truth. We live in a world where it is necessary to make distinctions and draw contrasts. <clears throat> and without them, uh, there is no possibility of understanding. Right? Without them, there's a leveling, doctrinally or practically, morally. Right, so true adherence to God demands strict loyalty to his truth. And those converted are concerned to array themselves on the Lord's side. Accounting God's enemies his own enemies. Get Psalm 139, 21, and 22. Did not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Yeah, the, the fact is, <coughs> there's an expression of loyalty to God when we are enabled to account uh, for our enemies, those that God tells us ought to be our enemies, because they're his enemies. Right? Uh, God detests these teachings. God detests these practices. We should detest these teachings and practices and people that promote and and uh, recklessly you know, go, go on in these things. Right? So, uh, to uphold what's good and godly is to exercise righteous judgment. Whereas to give place through toleration to error and evil is to pervert all allegiance to God. Psalm 82, 2-4. <clears throat> Uh, God wants just judgment. Just judgment requires that we judge according to his law, not according to our own desires, not according to uh, our own uh, conceits. And I, I saw somebody uh, posted something online uh, that said something like, if you're, if you're, God, or you're, you, you say your God um, uh, approves of abortion and sodomy, and and they said that's because your God is not the true God, right? And that's the truth. How do you know if your God is a true God or, or the false or, or a false God of your own devising? And the answer is, you can only discern that by going to the Word of God. Your sense of what's right and wrong apart from the Bible, apart from the Spirit of God working in you, is jaded because we are all of us sinners by nature. So we're all inclined to make up a God of our own devising. Calvin says that our minds are idol factories. We're always making idols. And 
That's why people are always making excuses. Excuses are idols. Moreover, then, this mark divides sound Christians from those who are not. 3 John 11. 3 John 11. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that do is good is of God, but he that do is evil has not seen God. <clears throat> so there's a line that goes throughout all of Scripture. And the line is, you know, there are plenty of people who are who are willing to acknowledge some of the truth of God's word. And, and that's because it comes to them naturally. They know. They know that this is true. They know that this is, in fact, the word of God. They know God demands certain things, right? People, by nature, they know that stealing is wrong, that lying is wrong. That doesn't mean they don't do it, but they know when they do it. The murder's wrong. They know blasphemy's wrong. Right? They know these things are wrong to some degree. And they, so they'll agree with you on this, right? But what they never can get their minds around, what the wicked can never do, they, they, they hesitate to condemn what's evil. Because if you're going to condemn what's evil, you have to begin with condemning what's evil in yourself, right? You have to be ready to condemn yourself and condemn what you've done and who you've been and, and all of that. And, of course, you're not going to do that unless you are, in fact, prepared to surrender your life to Christ. It's just not going to happen. So there has to be that that shift. All right, so let's move on in the National Confession. But in special, we detest and refuse the usurped authority of that Roman Antichrist upon the scriptures of God, upon the church, the civil magistrate, and consciences of men, all his tyrannous laws made upon indifferent things against our Christian liberty. So, um, uh, question four. May the Roman Antichrist usurp authority over the scriptures, the church, the civil magistrate, or the consciences of men? The answer is no. Look at Second Thessalonians 2.4. So the man of sin, what is the man of sin doing? He's he's exalting himself above all that is God. And he's speaking against the law. He's the man of sin is also in Greek uh, calls him the, the, the man of lawlessness. He's anomia. He's without law. So the Roman Antichrist may not usurp authority, number one, over the scriptures. Why? Because they are the supreme authority and judge in all matters of faith and practice. And we'll look at a few of them here. Matthew 22, 29, Ephesians 2, 20, and Acts 28, 25. Yeah, so the the scriptures we confess are the supreme authority and judge in all matters of faith and practice. <clears throat> There's no recourse to any higher authority. 
and and that authority is certainly not the Pope of Rome. Right? He is really the Antichrist, that man of sin, seated the temple of God. Uh, and he's there deceiving, and he is deceived. Right? So that is something they're saying we cast off, that usurped authority. He doesn't have a real authority. So usurped authority. Right? There's no authority but from God. And an authority from God... No power but of God, as Paul says in Romans 13. And there, that means there's no authority uh, to legislate or exercise power contrary to the law of God. That is, by definition, tyranny. Right. So he has no authority over the scriptures, because there's nothing over them. Uh, two, he has no authority... He may not usurp authority over the church because it and not the Roman Antichrist is a pillar and ground of truth. First Timothy three fifteen again. First Timothy three fifteen, by Terry Long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth, not the papacy, <clears throat> or as Vatican One in eighteen seventy declared. You know, the, the, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, when he speaks out of his throne, that he is infallible. Right? That opinion of of what is called the Ultramontanist party um, in the in the uh, Roman Church is uh, confuted by the Word of God itself. There is no authority in the Church invested in a single man. Right? The fact is, and this is. Uh, a point, and we're not going to get into it here, <clears throat> but the point of presbyterial government is this. The only authority in the church is vested in the eldership of the church. And it doesn't go any higher than that. Right? Not One elder is not of greater authority than another elder. <clears throat> there is a joint administration of authority in presbyteries and in and in synods but there's not a higher power in a person there's just a broader jurisdictional authority because there are a number of persons joined together in, in either presbytery or synod again that's a, a different point but the point is it can't be one person over the whole church. That's tyranny. All right, third, uh, the Roman Antichrist may not usurp authority over the civil magistrate, because to him belong the matters and concerns of civil policy. So look at First Peter two thirteen and fourteen. <laughs> Yeah, so the uh, again, there was this contest going on, uh, and the Protestants are saying no, the Pope does not exercise jurisdiction over the civil affairs of a nation. He doesn't even exercise 
jurisdiction over the ecclesiastical affairs, let alone the civil affairs. And then fourth, uh, he may not usurp authority over the consciences of men, because they, these have been set free to serve God in purity and sincerity. We'll look at James 4.12 and Acts 5.29. There's one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Lord, thou that judgest another. Acts 5, 29. If Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Okay, so, again, why did God set the consciences of men free uh, from, from the commandments and doctrines of men? Because he does not want any competition in the realm of worship. And he wants you free to be able to worship him. But what does Romanism do? Romanism says, well, um, you know, you have, to, uh, you have to pray the rosary. Or you have to go on pilgrimages. We're going to see this in the next section. Uh, in, in, in Not the next, but a couple sections here in the, in the uh, National Covenant, right? Uh, they they have all kinds of things they've come up with for you to do. And they say if you do them, well, you're going to gain merit with God. You're going to get brownie points. God's going to be happy with you. God, all of a sudden, he's going to start smiling. And if you're really good, you know, if you're like Mother Teresa, well, you're going you're gonna to do so many good things. You're going to get so many brownie points. Uh, the Roman Church says these are works of super erogation. And... What you don't need to keep you out of hell, the Roman church is going to put them over here. They've got a treasury, and they'll sell them off to people who need them. So a guy like Frank Sinatra, uh, before he dies, can go over and see the Pope and give millions of dollars, and that's supposed to keep him out of hell. On Judgment Day, ask him how that worked. All right. The fact is, these works of supererogation are not going to help. Right, so God wants your conscience free so you can serve him in the way he's commanded and not with all these other things that they're putting in the way. All right, so let's go on in the National Covenant. His erroneous, we're still talking about the Roman uh, Antichrist. <clears throat> His erroneous doctrine against the sufficiency of the written word, the perfection of the law, the office of Christ, and his blessed evangel. Right, so... Uh, question five, then, what are the erroneous doctrines of Romanism against the sufficiency of the scriptures, the perfection of the law, and the office of Christ together with his gospel? Well, the Roman church asserts many erroneous doctrines. First of all, denying the sufficiency of scripture as the rule of our faith, wherein we might find what is necessary to our salvation. Contrary to the word of God. These are all contrary, right? So let's look at 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17, and John 20, 31. 2 Timothy 3.15-17 And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in his life through 
Yeah, the Roman Church denies the sufficiency of Scripture to such a degree that for a long, long time, and probably still officially, they discourage the people in the congregations from even reading the Bible. Right? You're not going to get what you need from the Bible, according to them. Uh, you'll get all that you need by going to Mass, by going to Confession, and so on. Okay? Contrary to the written Word of God. Contrary, by the way, and, and we're not going to get into it, but if we were to do a study on this, uh, the Church Fathers, that they so often want to have us go back and, oh, well, you know, the Church Fathers said, the Church Fathers again and again express a confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Blakeney, in his, in his uh, handbook on, on the controversy with Rome, uh, just gives uh, probably dozens of citations from early church fathers in the first four or five centuries, showing that they, uh, all of them, are saying virtually the same thing. The scriptures are sufficient. If you want to be saved, you need to be familiar with the Bible. Right. Second, um, against the sufficiency or the perfection of the law, uh, and we could we could go through a lot <coughs> on this particular point, but um, let's point out they're denying the second commandment, and so they succumb to gross acts of idolatry. Look at Leviticus twenty six one and Exodus twenty four and five. <laughs> so very often uh, in, a, in a Roman catechism, you will, when they give you the Ten Commandments, they'll uh, give you the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Second commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Why? Well, I think if it said thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or bow down to it, people might start saying, why do we have all these statues? Why are we bowing down and worshiping before them? You know, why? It would, too many questions. <clears throat> we don't want you to be familiar with that second commandment. Right? But there's another, when we talk about the perfection of the law, I think there's a broader thing that they have in mind here as well. The Roman church, I think because of their semi-Pelagianism, actually has a notion that somehow we can keep enough of the law Um and they say this, and then we do what we can do, and then Jesus makes up the rest. Right? Do the best you can. It's a semi-Pelagian notion. But if they had a, a sense of the perfection of the law, they would have to confess, there's absolutely no way I can keep that thing. Right? They would have that response that Paul has in Romans 7, you know, when I get to that 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. Oh, no. Now I realize 
it's not just talking about my outward, but my inward disposition toward God. I am covetous. I always want things that I can't have. And that's a spiritual problem. It's not a physical problem. It's a spiritual problem. I've done, I've broken a bunch of the other commandments too, but boy, that, that one, then I start to see that this is a big problem. Well, Romanism says, it's not a problem. They're like the Pharisees. You know, if you keep it outwardly, good enough. You know, and and, and by the way, uh, you can, if you confess your sin to them in confession, it's almost like keeping it. And they've, they've got all kinds of ways. They don't really have a good view of the law. Because if they did, they would be real Augustinians. They would recognize that they can't possibly do enough to please God. And, and they would stop trying and they would just say, okay, uh, that means Jesus has to do everything or I'm toast. Right? Uh, third, the erroneous doctrine of Romanism concerning the office of Christ uh, is, I mean, we, we could talk about this again in a number of respects, but just off the top, what? They deny that Christ is the only mediator between God and man, contrary to Scripture. Look at 1 Timothy 2 5. 1 <clears throat> Yeah, there's one mediator. Uh, but not, not if you talk to them. There are all these saints, and of course there's Mary. Don't forget Mary. In fact, they'll tell you you're better off going to Mary than going to Jesus. And I, I remember hearing a uh, some Romanist at one point saying, "Well, look at the look at the the um, that miracle of turning water into wine at Cana, right? Remember, they went to Mary, and she told Jesus to do it. Well, that's a denial that he is the only mediator. There's a, they have a defective view of the office of Christ. And thus the gospel involves uh, the proposition, there's no other name given under heaven whereby men may be saved. So their, their problem with the office of Christ is also a problem with the gospel. Look at Acts 4.12. Acts 4. All matters of salvation yeah, and, and yet if you talk to them, uh, they, of course, they're off on this point as well. And I, and I know we're covering a lot of territory as we go through the National Covenant here on this stuff. This is just a, a cursory overview of the offenses of Rome. Right? We're, we can't possibly get into all of, I mean, we could, but it would... This would be weeks and weeks of, of studying this. All right. So let's continue with the National Covenant. His corrupted doctrine concerning original sin, our natural inability and rebellion to God's law, our justification by faith only, our imperfect sanctification and obedience to the law, uh, the nature, number, and use of the holy sacraments, his five bastard sacraments, with all his rites, ceremonies, and false doctrine, added to the ministration of the true sacraments without the word of God. His cruel judgment against infants departing without the sacrament. His absolute necessity of baptism. 
His blasphemous opinion of transubstantiation or real presence of Christ's body in the elements and receiving of the same by the wicked or bodies of men. His dispensations with solemn oaths, perjuries, and degrees of marriage forbidden in the word. His cruelty against the innocent divorced. His devilish mass. His blasphemous priesthood. His profane sacrifice for sins of the dead and the quick. His canonization of men. That means making men saints. Uh, calling upon angels or saints departed. Worshipping of imagery, relics, and crosses. Dedicating of churches, altars, days. Vows to creatures. His purgatory. Prayers for the dead. Praying or speaking in a strange language. Talking about all the Mass was till Vatican II. It was always in Latin. Uh, with his processions and blasphemous litany and multitude of advocates or mediators. His manifold orders, auricular confession, his desperate and uncertain repentance, his general and doubtsome faith, his satisfaction of men for their sins, his justification by works, opus operatum, works of supererogation, merits, pardons, peregrinations, he's talking about wandering about on pilgrimage um, and stations, his holy water, baptizing of bells, conjuring of spirits, crossing, that's when they cross themselves, uh, sainting, again, um, anointing, conjuring, howling of God's creatures, with the superstitious opinion joined therewith, his worldly monarchy and wicked hierarchy, his three solemn vows with all his shavelings, he's talking about the monks, because they have that tonsure, that shaved head, uh, with all his shavelings of sundry sorts. His erroneous and bloody decrees made at Trent. That's where they overturned and contravened all of the Protestant doctrine, officially. Uh, with all the subscribers and approvers of that cruel and bloody band, talking about a covenant conjured against the Church of God. So they entered into a covenant of sorts against the Protestants. So we're not going to go through all of these things, but... <clears throat> It's actually a pretty good list of, of complaints against the Roman Church. So question six, and what are some of the doctrines and practices of Romanism which stand condemned by the Reformed Church? Uh, the doctrines and practices of the Reformed Church condemned by the, of the Roman Church condemned by the Reformed consist in the following. Number one, uh, let's begin by looking at their abominable doctrines corrupting the doctrine of salvation, especially that of Justification by faith alone. So look at Romans 4, 1 to 6. Romans 4, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> and we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found. Abraham were justified by works, he hath were out to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. It also describeth the blessings of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Okay, so the, the complaint here is along these lines. The Roman church, first of all, they believe that original sin is washed away in baptism. All right? That's not what baptism is doing. 
all right? <clears throat> and as a result, they've got problems with their views of salvation up and down the line, and it really comes into focus when they deny that we're justified by faith alone. They confuse justification, which is monergistic. Only God justifies. It's monergistic. It's only the action of God. What is justification? It's the act of God's free grace. They confuse justification with sanctification, which is synergistic. That is, the Spirit of God is working in the man to will and to do his good pleasure. And so they bring our works into justification. That's a, a huge problem. Right. Second, we have their abuse of the sacraments and adding to them five bastard sacraments. I want to look first at Matthew 28, 19 and 1 Corinthians 11, 20 and 23. Come together, therefore, into one place, not to eat the Lord's Supper. For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus night in which he was betrayed for bread. Right. So Jesus gives us <coughs> two sacraments, two ordinances, two sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Romanism adds to that marriage, ordination, confirmation, um, holy unction. Which one am I missing? Confession. Um, they add these based on uh, different, uh, they have different reasons for adding them, but the, the fact is that all of these reasons are, are jaded. Of course, they also add things to the sacraments. So, uh, for example, we in the Lord's Supper, they believe that it turns into Jesus' body and, and blood, transubstantiation. So, you know, they, that's why they don't let the people have any of the the um, wine, because if you drip a bit of it, it's like Jesus' real blood is going somewhere onto the floor, and that would be absolutely irreclaimable if it were to slip down between the rocks. They actually take all the little crumbs afterward uh, from the host, and either the priest will mix it in with the wine and drink it, or they'll take it and they, they bury it in the altar. If they actually take it and they bury it, is how they... What they, what they describe. And so um, the, uh, the, the fact is that these, these sacraments are a problem. <clears throat> uh, just the two, they corrupt them. They put in, in the, um, in baptism, in the water for baptism, they add the priest's spittle, uh, oil, Candle wax. There are all kinds of things that, that are going on. Right? This is why in our confession we're, we're clear. We use clean water. Right? We only use bread and wine. Uh, 
important. These are the elements that Christ has appointed. No more. Uh, we don't view marriage as a sacrament. You know, this is the reason why, by the way, the Roman church doesn't believe anyone's married unless they've been married by a priest in the Roman church. Or someone with, I should say, someone with canonical orders. Uh, they So there are... Uh, perhaps they, they would recognize somebody from Eastern Orthodoxy or from Ang the Anglican Church or something like that, or, or some the, the Swedish Lutheran Church where they have uh, the, the hierarchical bishops. Um, but they don't generally outside of, of that because they view it as a sacrament. Um Third, we have to consider the, their laws and dispensations regarding marriage. We're going to look at Matthew 19.9 and Leviticus 20.19-21. 20, Matthew 19.9. <clears throat> Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy mother's sister, nor of thy father's sister, for he uncovereth his near kin, they shall bear their iniquity. If a man shall lie with his uncle's wife, he hath uncovered his uncle's nakedness, they shall bear their sin, they shall die childless. And if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an uncle, he hath uncovered his brother's nakedness, they shall be childless. Yeah, so... There are a bunch of things that they're complaining about in the National Confession here regarding marriage. Uh, one is that the Roman Church forbids uh, uh, the um, innocent party in a divorce to remarry. They forbid, um, unless, of course, you get an indulgence, in which case you don't. it doesn't really matter whether you're the innocent party or the guilty party, because if you pay the, the right person the right amount of money, uh, they can annul your marriage, and then you can go and get married again. Or if you were not married in the Roman Church, they don't consider it legitimate anyway. Right? Um, the other thing they, they do is they will grant dispensations so that you can marry within forbidden degrees according to the Bible. Right? The Bible says you can't marry any closer uh, <clears throat> in degrees of, of affinity than you can in degrees of consanguinity. By blood or by law, you're related in the same number of degrees through marriage. And you can't go any closer than um, the, these degrees that are permitted in the Bible. The Roman Church says, forget about all of that. Don't worry about that. Again, pay us money and we'll get you an indulgence. And uh, that indulgence will take care of it and it won't be a problem. The Protestants are saying, wait, you can't, you can't dispense with forbidden degrees of marriage, right? You can't all of a sudden, I mean, if, if theoretically, if the Roman church wanted to allow, you know, a, a mother and a son to marry or a, a brother and a sister to marry, the Roman church theoretically <clears throat> uh, retains to itself the authority to do just that. And probably if we look hard enough, they've actually done that on an occasion or two. Right? They've certainly done it in 
some of the lesser obvious cases where people might not realize, but uh, degrees which have been forbidden. And so, because of their views of marriage as a sacrament, there are all kinds of other abuses and and um, problems that arise from that. <clears throat> all right, fourth. Then we have come to their sacrifices and prayers for the dead. Look at First Timothy four one. <clears throat> so giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. What is doctrines of devils? See, what's Paul talking about? Well, in ancient Greek culture, demons were understood to be uh, the departed souls of people. And the idea that the Greeks had, the, the pagan Greeks, was this. Um, if I want to get a message to Mount Olympus, to you know the gods on Mount Olympus, what I could do is I contact my forefathers. This is why ancestor worship around the world, because they have variations of this. Um, these these ideas are are um, have, have been prevalent throughout the world, uh, but the Roman Church takes it again to a, another degree. I'm gonna I'm going to contact them. I'm going to make contact with God through uh, the the uh, contacting the dead. So praying to saints and praying for the dead and all of this. I mean, there there's all this. It's really what the Bible condemns as necromancy. And it's sorcery. And Romanism has, in fact, em embraced it as a doctrine. All right. The fifth. The fifth thing is uh, and, and they give a big list of things, and I, I put them all under this heading. Uh, the dedicating of things for sacred use was part of the Old Testament administration, such as the temple. So look at Second Chronicles 2, 4, and 7, 9. Okay, so under the Old Testament, they're dedicating things all over the place, and we could show they dedicated walls, they dedicated their houses, they dedicate this place and that place. They're dedicating things, right? They're setting these things aside. They're making them holy. It's so different than we talk about, you know, the Roman church with holy water and holy relics and holy this and holy that. That was, you know, under the Old Testament, there was some, uh, there was some thought that this be done. And this practice is there for various reasons. But look, under the New Testament, we're told believers are the temple. So look at 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 1 Peter 
also the five stones are built on a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Okay, so what is all of this? These dedications are all pointing to, uh, among other things, I think this idea that everything is going to, this idea of the covenant, right? Where, uh, but the fact is that these types and shadows are taken into the administration by dedication. They're being brought under the covenant so that we look at them. These are now types. Uh, they're, they're types that are now abolished, I should say. Uh, we want to look at Hebrews 10, 2 and Colossians 2, 17. For them would they not have ceased to be offered, that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. Colossians 2, verse 17, are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Right, so these are types under the Old Testament, but they've been abolished now. We don't do types and shadows. So the solemn consecration of churches, uh, churchyards, uh, consecrating vessels for the administration of the sacraments, etc. Under the New Testament, they have no warrant in the Word of God. Look at Galatians 2.18 and Colossians 2.20. Verse 18, I build again the thing which I destroyed and make myself a transgressor. Colossians 2, verse 20, Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the root of the world, why is there living in the world? Are you subject to yeah, so again, in two places at least there in, in Galatians and Colossians, uh, Paul is asking both the church at Galatia and the, the church of uh, the Colossians, you know, why would you want to go back to the types and shadows? We now have the fullness in Christ. Why go back to that? And and that's exactly what Rome is doing. It if And Paul says, if I build again the things I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. This is why we don't use musical instruments. This is why we don't uh, celebrate holy days. We don't do these different things. Uh, we don't consecrate churches. We don't burn incense in our worship. We don't have all of these other typical things that have been introduced in a lot of liturgical churches. They're trying to resurrect mosaic ceremonies and imbue them with Christian meaning. The problem is those types and shadows came to an end with Christ. And when you go back to that, Paul says, you make yourself a transgressor. All right. Six, the apostle finds fault with the Galatians for observing of days. And this is another thing that they raised, dedicating of days, setting aside of days. And at the time of the Reformation, I think I read somewhere that there were more days in a month where you were not allowed to work because it was a saint, this saint's day and that saint's day. Uh, there were more holy days than there were work days, and, and nothing was getting done. You know, the Protestants came along and said, wait a minute, we have one holy day a week, it's the Lord's Day, and six days you're going to labor like the Ten Commandments say. Right? So get used to it. And the, through Protestantism, we actually, in France, is one of the first places where the middle class arose as a result of this. The Roman church, they were off partying all the time while, while Protestants were building a civilization, right? That's why the, the uh, Protestant nations uh, became so prosperous. 
because they were hard workers because they were they were told they had to work six days a week you don't get all these days off one day a week But the Roman church is saying, take them off. And the, 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 so the, the Apostle Paul finds fault with the Galatians for observing days. Look at Galatians 4.10. Galatians 4.10. days and months and times and years. Yeah, and he's, he's taking umbrage with them over really two reasons. First, he says, the, the, these things, these, this, um, all of these mosaic ceremonies were a burden it was a yoke of bondage, which neither they nor their fathers were able to bear. The, the Jews had a hard time with this. Think about how horrible, uh, you know, if you're a Jew, you could be out working three times a year. You had to stop wherever you were in Israel, and all of the able-bodied men were supposed to go up to Israel, or to uh, Jerusalem, to make a sacrifice. You had to take time off. You had to get there. They didn't have buses. They didn't have trains. That meant you had to walk. So you had to plan this out. Because once those holy days came, you weren't allowed to be moving through all these, uh, all these places freely. You were already supposed to be there. So within a certain category, if you were a male of a certain age... You had to be there. That was just for the holy days. Then when you think about all the sacrifices, you know, every, you have to figure out how much do I have to turn over? You know, my I've got to give 10% of this and I've got to do this much of that. I, I have to, Whatever I grow in my fields, I have to set aside this much for the priest. I've got to find the best animals, the ones without blemish. I've got to take them up for the sacrifice. Paul says this was a burden. You should be glad that's over. Why do you want to keep going back to that stuff? Right? That's a, That was hard. Isn't it easier just to have faith in Christ? Right? So he says these are a yoke of bondage which neither they nor their fathers are able to bear. Look at Galatians 4.3. And then B, he says they were weak and beggarly rudiments, not fitting the Christian church, which had been liberated from the pedagogical instruction of the ceremonial law. Galatians 4.9. Yeah, so he's saying, why would you want to go back to that? All right, let's move on to the seventh category of things, and that is vows. He brings this up in several ways. When he, when, when the covenant mentions the shavelings or the, the monks, and when they mention um, just all the different uh, things that the Roman church does with vows, let's be clear. Vows are to be made to God alone, not to the creature. Look at Psalm 50, verse 14. And moreover, we know the Lord threatens those who vow to other gods but himself alone. Jeremiah 44, 25, and 26.
So the the fact is vows are made to God alone, not to anything else. So this idea that you would make a vow, and, and we're talking about, and our confession talks about this, Westminster Confession talks about this, um, vows to creatures, right? by which we understand not only vows that they're making to Mary or to saints departed, but monks and nuns make vows to the abbots and priors the people that run the monasteries and the nunneries. Okay? And they're saying, this is all wrong. Right, and then finally, eight, num number eight here, finally, consider that these various expressions of false devotion are all of them commandments of men and are violations of what we call the regulative principle of worship. Look at Matthew 15, 9. Yeah, so we could go through all of those different things, but really, when Jesus says, in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrine, the commandments of men, that cuts off at the knees all of this stuff that is sprouted out of Romanism, right? These are all practices, doctrines and practices that are being condemned in the National Covenant that have arisen not from reading the Word of God, but from uh, the policy of the Roman church. And so all of this stands condemned. All right, let's continue with the national covenant. We're coming to the end. And finally, we detest all his, again, his, they mean the Roman Antichrist, his vain allegories, rites, signs, and traditions brought in the church, without or against the word of God and doctrine of this true reformed church, to the which we join ourselves willingly in doctrine, faith, religion, discipline, and use of the holy sacraments as lively members of the same in Christ our head, promising and swearing by the great name of the Lord our God that we shall continue in the obedience to the doctrine and discipline of this church. And in here... This confession uh, was subscribed in 1587 and 88 by the king, uh, Lennox, uh, Huntley, which, who was a chancellor, and 95 other persons. And they add here agreeing to the word. Right? So uh, obedience to this the doctrine, discipline of this church, agreeing to the word. And shall defend the same according to our vocation and power all the days of our lives under the pains contained in the law endanger both the body and soul in the day of God's fearful judgment. So, question seven. Ought the covenanter to engage to defend the purity of the doctrine, worship, government, and discipline of the Reformed Church according to his vocation and power regarding only the great danger of disobedience in the day of God's fearful judgment? The answer is yes. Look at Deuteronomy 12.32. Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. What Whatsoever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Yeah, we're to 
we're not to add to or detract from the word of God, right? What God tells us to do, we're to do that. No more, no less. Okay, why, why don't we do any more? Because when you add something to perfection, it's no longer perfect. Right? Why are we not to do any less? Because if you detract anything from perfection, same thing. Right? It's not perfect. Christians must not fear the face of the unbelievers, but seek to declare the whole counsel of God according to their station and calling. So look at Jeremiah 1, 8 to 10. So Jeremiah, when he's called, when God calls him, he says, Look, don't be afraid of their faces. And that should be your attitude within your, your station, your place, your calling, and so on. Uh, you are to be a witness for the truth. Um, you shouldn't be afraid of, of what the, you know, they can do, uh, because ultimately it's not in your hands, it's in God's hands. So we are to suffer if God call us. Look at Philippians 1.29 and 2 Timothy 2.12. 1, and we're to suffer even unto death for the true religion and the truth. Look at Revelation 2.13, Acts 7, 57 and 58, Luke 21, 15 and 16, and Philippians 1, 20 and 21. Revelation 2, 13. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, thee, more Satan saveth. And I holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas is my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. And they cried out with a loud voice, and sucked him with one accord. Cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And we are obliged to believe and give account thereof before all men and a reason of our faith and hope. First Peter three fifteen. Yeah, so this section of the confession is is really an affirmation that we not only detest Roma, Romanism, okay, all of the the uh, uh, things that Rome has tried to bring into the church, but we in in um, 
casting all of that off, we're not casting off true religion. Right? We're binding ourselves to the true religion, to what the Bible says, and we're we're going to persevere in that uh, regardless of what comes, right? Including martyrdom if necessary. These, this, remember, a lot of these people are noblemen, and uh, they're pledging their all. You know, if things go wrong, they lose everything. Uh, and some of them do end up losing their lives. All right, so the last part of the National Confession here. And because we perceive that the quietness and stability of our religion and church does depend upon the safety and good behavior of the King's Majesty, as upon a comfortable instrument of God's mercy to this country for the maintaining of his church and ministration of justice amongst us, we protest and promise with our hearts under the same oath Handwrit and pains, we shall defend his person and authority with our goods, bodies, and lives in the defense of Christ, his evangel, liberties of our country, ministration of justice, and punishment of iniquity against all enemies within this realm or without, as we desire our God to be a strong and merciful defender to us in the day of our death and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, be all honor and glory eternally. Amen. So, two questions that we're going to examine on this last bit. Question eight, should the covenanter call God to witness that is subscribing the true reformed religion did not flow from any worldly respect, but from a sincere love of God's true religion? The answer is yes. Second Corinthians one twenty three. For a record upon my soul, let to spare you, I came not as yet unto Corinth. So Paul calls God to record, and you know we see this a lot that uh, the the apostles are are very willing when they're speaking the truth to call God to record, whether or not uh, you know God be witness that what I'm saying is true, since God alone is able to read the heart. Look at Jeremiah 17, 9 and ten. Since God alone is able to read the heart, then it's appropriate, isn't it, that he should be called upon to witness in matters of such great consequence. Look at Judges 11.10 and 1 Samuel 12.5. Judges 11.10. So God is the only one who can discern the true motives and determine if there is an inward heart disposition to idolatry. Look at Psalm 7 9 and Psalm 44 20 and 21. Psalm 7 verse 9. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just, for the righteous God tries the hearts and reigns. Psalm 44, <clears throat> verse 20 and 21. If we have forgotten the name of our God, or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out? We know with the secret, secret of the heart. And yet we know in all confession of the truth, it's appropriate to have an eye to the prior covenant commitments which engage all true believers. So, 2 Corinthians 2, 17. 
Yeah. So again, the idea is that what they're doing is absolutely the correct thing. They're calling God to witness that they're not what they're doing is not from any worldly interest, but that they have a love to God and true religion in both church and state. They're concerned to see a reformation. And so then the question, the last question, just a brief question, question nine. Does a great part of the quietness and stability of the true religion and church depend upon uh, the safety and good behavior of the civil magistrate? And, of course, the answer is yes. First Timothy 2.2. 2. Yes, yeah, so we, we know, and this is why they call in, and we're going to be talking about this more in the coming week, the coming weeks. Uh, this idea that the magistrate—they're pledging themselves to the magistrate, in so far as he upholds the true religion and true justice and the liberties, the true and just liberties of the nation. They're not pledging unconditional allegiance. They're pledging a conditional allegiance under the true God and true religion to the King's Majesty, and so they're. They're, um, they're limiting, it's a limited obedience, uh, but it is an obedience, nonetheless, that um, is being pledged to help the king do his right and proper job. It's the duty of the civil magistrate to take order, the peace and unity of the church be preserved, to see that God's truth be kept pure and entire in matters of doctrine and worship, and to suppress heresies and blasphemies. Look at Isaiah 49, 23, Ezra 7, 23, 25 to 28, Leviticus 24, 16, 2 Kings 18, 4, 2 Chronicles 15, 12 and 13, and 2 Chronicles 
And I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I kept them out of Israel, chief men to go up with me. The blasphemy of the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. All the congregations shall certainly sell him in the land of the blasphemy of the Lord, shall be put to death. I place the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpents that Moses had made. In those days, the children of Israel would burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan. Chronicles 15, verses 1 and 13. The Lord their God, and all his days are not from following the word of their fathers. Okay, so. Again, there, there is this issue of the magistrate uh, and his concern for the true religion. And that's going to be a, a point at which the next section of the National Covenant, when we get to the, um, the additions they put in in 1638, they're going to show that the magistrate did just that. So that what the Covenanters of 1638 are doing is actually according to the law of the land. And they're, they're, what they're doing is they're pressing both church and state, to return to uh, its previous commitments. And um, that's what we're going to talk about next time when we deal with this national covenant.